Um, do you still have Matthew 3 open in front of you? We've got these uh, Bibles here. It's on page uh, 1059 in these Bibles. And uh, we're going to look at this brilliant moment where heaven opens. I don't know what you think you would see if heaven opened. Where in England, we know when, when the heavens opened, it rains, right? That's, that's usually what happens. But actually in the Bible, a couple of times, literally, the heavens open and you get to see inside. Sometimes it's talking figuratively, like with Noah. That's the first time we hear about the heavens opening, and that's why we have the saying about the heavens opening and you getting wet. But actually, a couple of times in the Bible, literally, the heavens open, and you get to see inside. I wonder what you think you would see if you saw into the cockpit of all reality. What would you see? I'm going to say a short prayer, and we're going to ask that God would show us what is at the heart of of reality. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray that now with your word open, you would show us Jesus, so that in Jesus we might understand who we truly are and who you truly are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I live in Eastbourne, but my day job is as an evangelist, and that just means I shoot my mouth off about who Jesus is. I go to churches and schools and universities, and that's where I met Adam for the first time, talking to people up in Edinburgh about who Jesus is. And so my life is a bit split, because I don't know what you know about Eastbourne, but it's, it's known as sort of God's waiting room. It's the, the, <laughs> it's the retirement capital of the United Kingdom. It's the sort of place where all the shop windows are bifocal, just, just to help the locals. So I spend a lot of my time in Eastbourne, and then I spend a lot of my time going to places like Edinburgh and, and speaking to students. And I've noticed something that's similar between those two different audiences. Whenever I'm with people who are, let's say, over 65, and they tell me that they're a Christian, well, I don't believe them. I'm not rude about it. I don't sort of poke them in the chest and say, prove it, you know sing a few verses of Shine, Jesus, Shine. I don't, I don't try to make them prove their Christianity. But when they say I'm a Christian, I think to myself, ah, okay, but let's say four decades ago, it was a lot easier to say you were a Christian, even if you'd never go to church, even if you had no personal relationship with Jesus. It was just the sort of thing that you did. That in the 1960s, let's say, if there was a whole shelf full of identities, a whole bunch of labels that you could slap on your chest and go out into the world. Christian kind of fit. Christian was a simple label to whack on you, and you go out into the world, and it would help you to navigate life a bit more frictionlessly. What are you? I'm Christian. Why? I was confirmed, or whatever, right? There's such a thing as nominal Christianity. Have you heard of that phrase, nominal Christianity? It just means Christianity in name but maybe not the reality of it, okay? So if someone is over 65 and they tell me that they're a Christian, I don't necessarily believe them. But then the same rule applies when I go to a university and I speak to someone who's under 25. Someone under 25 says to me, they're an atheist, I don't believe them. And for exactly the same reason. Because nowadays, there's a whole shelf full of identities, aren't there? 
and you can pick out an identity and you can whack it on your chest and out you go into the world and what are you? I'm an atheist. Why? I, I don't know. Isn't that the default? Isn't that what everyone is these days? There's such a thing as nominal atheism, isn't there? So if someone says to me, I believe in God, I'm like, interesting. And if someone says to me, I don't believe in God, I think to myself, interesting. But I've got a lot more questions for people. Do you have more questions for people? Like if someone says they believe in God, surely the next question should be, which God do you believe in? Shouldn't that be the question? Because there are lots of gods out there. There are lots of gods that human beings have come up with, lots of gods that have been presented to the world as being the creator of heaven and earth. If someone says, I believe in God, maybe we should press in and just say, which God do you believe in? But at the same time, when someone comes to us and says, I don't believe in God, we should have another question for them, shouldn't we? Which God don't you believe in? It's a perfectly good question, don't you think? There was a chaplain at Worcester College, Oxford, who used to ask that of all his students. At Worcester College, Oxford, when you came up to the university, you had to spend some time with the chaplain in Freshers' Week. I'm sure it was not the most rock and roll thing to do in Freshers' Week. You had to spend time with the chaplain. And so this chaplain got to meet a whole bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds who probably hadn't thought much about Christianity or religion or God. And they would say to him, I, I don't really believe in God. And this chaplain would say, well, which God don't you believe in? And they would say, well, you know, just the big guy. Just, we all know who God is, don't we? But this chaplain would press them. He said, describe to me the God in whom you don't believe. And you know who they'd end up describing? They'd end up describing some distant power, you know, an individual all by himself, maybe with a beard, thunderbolt ready to hurl. And the chaplain would say, you don't believe in that God? I don't believe in that God. That sounds like Zeus. And then the student would get interested and they'd say, so you believe in God, don't you? You're a chaplain. It's kind of written into the job description, don't you? He said, ah, I believe in the God revealed by Jesus. And that makes all the difference in the world. Which God do you believe in? Which God don't you believe in? I was once at another university called Exeter University, and there was a, a woman in the front row listening to all my talks in the evening. She was taking copious notes in the margins of her Bible, and I got to speak to her on the Wednesday night, and I said, what's your story? And she said, well, I grew up in Iran, and I grew up as a very observant Muslim. I would say all the prayers. I would go to the mosque when it was required of me to go to the mosque. But then, aged 14, an uncle of mine sidled up to me at a wedding, and he managed to smuggle to me a copy of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographies of Jesus that kick off the New Testament. And my uncle just said, read this. And it was the most subversive thing for a young teenager. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine Iran now. Imagine, imagine wanting to be a rebel in Iran. There's a great way of being a rebel. It's to read the Gospels. And she started reading through Matthew and Mark and Luke. And she said, I got halfway through Luke's gospel and I realized God could not be the God of the Ayatollahs. That is the religious authorities. God could not be the God of the religious authorities. He must be the Jesus God. And ever since then, I thought, yeah, that's the place, the Jesus God. He is the one who is worthy 
of our trust, of our love, of our worship. If God is like Jesus, I'm in. How about you? Here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is introducing himself to the world's stage. And it's Jesus who, in a sense, tears open the heavens. It's because of Jesus that we see in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. What are we going to see? The God who Jesus reveals. What are we going to see? Are we going to see Zeus with a beard and a thunderbolt? What are, we, are we going to see a Wizard of Oz type figure, very unimpressive? Are we just going to see cogs grinding along according to iron necessity? Are we just going to see matter in motion crashing into each other? Are we just going to see impersonal karma or a force? What are we going to see? Who's in charge of things? Who is the God who Jesus revealed? At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. What do you see when you look into heaven? Well, with Jesus at your side, what you see is love. That's what you see. You see the eternal Spirit of God filling Jesus, and you see the eternal Father proclaiming Jesus to be his beloved. That's what you see. And the Bible says, that is what you would see if you wound back the clock before the world began. Even before there were people or planets or protons, what do you think was there in the beginning? What do you think was there? Some people just think of impersonal forces or like mathematical equations, physical realities. Other people think of spirits and fairies and some people think of just a lonely God all by himself, twiddling his celestial thumbs, itching to get on and create, because he's only got his own thoughts for company. What do you think was there in the beginning? The Bible says there was love. There was a father always loving his son, Jesus, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's who God is, according to the Bible. The God who Jesus reveals is not a capricious Zeus, and he's not some kind of impersonal force. The God who Jesus reveals is a father brimful of love and pride and praise and joy in his eternal son, Jesus, filling him with the spirit of life, the spirit of joy, like an eternal Niagara Falls crashing down from the father to the son. Is that what you picture when you picture God? I think that's a challenge for all of us. You might have gone to church your entire life and still, we need to be refreshed, don't we? By Jesus' picture of God. Don't we always drift from this? Aren't we always tempted to doubt this, to be skeptical of this? And if you've never come to church before, or, or you're new to these sorts of things, isn't this a challenging view? The God that Jesus reveals is love. He's not just loving. He constitutionally is love. He can't not not love. It's, it's just part of who he is. A father loving the son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Is this a radical thought? It's hard to believe. Do you know why it's hard to believe? 
Because God might be full of light and life and love, but is that what the world is like? Does the world look like it's full of light and life and love? Sometimes. Oftentimes not. So often we look out at a world and it's full of darkness and death and disconnection. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, where has that come from? And the the Bible says that's because we have turned from God. And if you turn from light, where else do you go but death, right? If you turn from light, you, you enter into darkness, don't you? That's kind of the nature of the case. When you turn away from he who is life, I guess you're turning into death, right? When you, when you turn from love, you're turning into disconnection, anger, right? And that's the world that we live in, isn't it? Here in Matthew chapter 3, even though God is a Niagara Falls of, of love, we are here in a desert place as our passage begins. It's on page 1059. You'll see this is all about the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John the Baptist is a guy who is washing people ritually in a desert place. And it's this sign that we are far from the fountain of life. In the desert, we are thirsty. In the desert, we are unclean. And we need this this water of life. And people are queuing up around the block to get baptized. They're queuing up around the block because they recognize, I am thirsty and I am unclean. I don't have this Niagara Falls of blessing in my life. And there are sins in my life. That's what people did when they got baptized. They would confess their sins, as verse 6 says. Confess their sins in order to get baptized. Confess all the ways that I have turned from light into darkness. I have turned from love into disconnection. I've turned from life into death. And I've done that morally. And I continue to do that, and I feel unclean. Can you relate to these people? I can definitely relate to these people. There are times when I'm just doing the washing up, and I look out the window, and I just think to myself, you idiot, Glenn. I think about something that I said just last week, or maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe it was 30 years ago. I think, you idiot. You know, when my son, who's now four, was just uh, learning to speak, he started saying this word. We, we, we couldn't figure out what he was saying. He was saying, like, doi, 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 doi. And I was thinking to myself, is he, is he saying daddy? Is it, you know, he's not saying daddy. I mean, proud fathers always want to hear their own name. It wasn't, he wasn't saying daddy. And we're trying to, we're, we're trying to suggest to him, what, what are you trying to communicate? Doi, 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 doi. He said it a lot. And then one day, he was in his high chair in the corner of the kitchen. I'm doing the washing up. And I look out the window, and I start to think about a really stupid thing that I said the week before. And then as I'm washing up, I just say, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> and JJ in the corner says, doi, 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 doi. <laughs> mm. I must say it a lot. Maybe the words you say are a little bit different. I don't know what you say when you remember and you just feel a little bit dirty. You, you feel like you need a wash. A friend of mine was counseling a man who'd made some terrible decisions in his life that cost him his marriage, cost him his family, cost him his business. This man said to my friend, I wish I could take my whole life and put it in a big washing machine, put it on the hottest wash there is until all the grit and the grime is gone. Have you ever wanted that? 
I've wondered that many, many times. Spoke to a woman in Wales recently who'd just come to faith. I said, what's, what's it been like coming to Jesus? She said, it's like having a power shower on the inside. Don't you want that? We all want that. These guys are getting honest. In the desert, they're queuing up for a wash. And they're saying, look, the water is on the outside, but I need God's Holy Spirit on the inside to wash me, to cleanse me, to fill me. And so picture the scene. They're in a desert place. We're unclean, we're dirty, we're thirsty. There's a queue for whatever it is that God's got on offer. If God is some kind of solution, I need to have this solution. And who should show up to the baptism? Stunning, isn't it? Verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Do you see why that's a shocking verse? To be baptized? He's the perfect, pure son of God. Why is he taking a bath alongside all the other sinners? That's John's question. Verse 14. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Essentially, Jesus is saying, don't worry, John. We'll do it this way around now. Because this is what I am all about. What is Jesus all about? He joins us in our filth so we can join him in his family. That's a sentence you could write across the entire Bible. What's the whole Bible about? The whole Bible is about the Son of God joins us in our filth so that we can join him in his family. He joins us shoulder to shoulder in the waters of baptism. And it's the fulfillment of ancient scriptures, like in Isaiah 53, it says, when the Son of God comes, he will be numbered among the transgressors. You could translate that as, he would be counted alongside all the other messy people. He would join us in solidarity, like a footballer joining a team. You know, when a footballer joins a failing team, the team is headed for relegation, but this amazing Brazilian teenager comes in, and he starts to wear the colors of the failing team. And you know what happens at the, at the press conference? He shakes hands with the manager, and he publicly wears the colors, and he's, he's saying, I'm with you guys now. And now every goal I score will be your goal. Every victory I secure will be your victory. That's what Jesus does. And this is the press conference. This is Jesus launching himself to the world stage. He's joining Team Earth, which is a failing team, a team headed for relegation. And here, as heaven is opened, he's shaking hands with the manager, as it were. And publicly, he's wearing the colors of Team Earth. And he's saying, everything I do now, I do for you. He's about to go toe-to-toe with the great enemy of God's people, Satan. And he will triumph over temptation. He's going to score the winner over temptation. And then you read on in Matthew's Gospel, and he takes on sickness, and he heals it. He scores the winner over it. And then he comes across sinners, and he forgives them, scores the winner over it. He comes even across chaotic nature, and a storm blows up. And Jesus quietens it with just a word. He scores the winner over the chaotic powers of nature. Who is this Jesus? He is God's champion entering our team to score the winner. And then it goes all the way to the final. 
in the Gospels, where Jesus on that cross, you know what? He, he takes on our filth, actually. He wears it. He owns it. He becomes our sin on that cross. And he's dead and buried on that Friday evening. And you might think, ah, all our hopes are dashed. And then Sunday morning, the winner, in extra time, Jesus rises up again to score that winner over sin and death and hell. And he does that thing that footballers do. You know, when they score the goal, they come to their home supporters and they kind of tap the badge, which is kind of saying, it's, it's for you guys, it's for you guys. And we don't really believe them. It's really for the millions and millions of pounds. But still, within the mythology, we think, ah, he did that for me. That goal is my goal. Fascinating at sporting events, isn't it? You can jump up and down, and you're even more happy than the person who just scored the goal sometimes, aren't you? You're, it's the happiest you've ever been in your entire life because a little bag of wind has gone into a net. You're like, over the moon. Why? I think we're tapping into this. We're tapping into... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, he takes on our sin, he takes on our death, he takes on our hell, he scores the winner, he bursts through, he comes to us, and he says, it's for you. It's for you. And what is church? Church is, I guess, the fan club. Church is us jumping up and down, singing, happy in Jesus. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He enters into our filth so that we can enter into his family. What is his family? Well, we've, we've already seen it over the page. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the family. The family that was there before the world began. And the Son of the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, takes all your filth, and he says, now have my family. Takes all your sin, he says, now have my salvation. Takes your death, and he says, now have my eternal life. What should we do? Surely, what we should do is to stand in those waters, hand in hand with Jesus and receive his welcome. It would mean confessing our sins, wouldn't it? It would mean confessing, I need the power shower on the inside. I need the washing. I need the cleansing. It would mean confessing our needs, confessing our sins. But then coming to Jesus, standing with him in those waters of baptism, being filled by his spirit, and hearing from heaven the verdict you were made to hear, you are my child who I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are made to hear those words. Everything you have ever chased in life has been an attempt to get that verdict. You want the one who really matters to look at you and say, I love you. I even like you. I'm proud of you. You're mine. You are made to hear that. And in Jesus, that verdict is yours. Heaven is opened. The Spirit 
filled you. The eternal love of God is yours forever. Do you want that? If you do want that, it's very obvious what you need to do. Confess your sins and say, Jesus, I want you. And if that's you this morning, why don't I just say a prayer right now where we can do that. We can get honest with God, confess our sins, and we can say, Jesus, thank you. I want you in my life. Can we do that now? Let's just bow our heads and let me lead us in a prayer. And you might want to echo these words in your heart. The words are not magic, but they might be a way that you can respond to the Jesus who's calling you. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing me the true nature of love. I'm sorry for the ways that I have walked away. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising for me. I want to stand with you. Please give me your life. Please give me your spirit. Please may I know your Father's verdict that I am a beloved child. Help me to walk with you through this life and into your eternity. Amen.